With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. And blessings. Hi, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. We're coming to you over www.blocktalkradio.com backslash Black History. I would also remind you that these shows are archived and are available for free via iTunes. And if you go to www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Also, I would encourage you to send a friend request to our executive producer, Leslie Gist, on Facebook. And that's Leslie, that's L-E-S-L-E-Y at Facebook. My guest tonight is Dr. Carsonia Wise Whitehead. Dr. Whitehead is an assistant professor of communication, also an affiliate assistant professor of African and African American studies at Loyola University, Maryland. She received her PhD from the University of Maryland. She is also a senior producer and writer in documentary films and live television. Her work there accorded her three New York Emmy nominations. She has also received the Zora Neale Hurston Creative Writing Award, in addition to the Langston Hughes David Diop Etheridge Knight Poetry Award. She has studied at the University of Nairobi, Kenya, undergraduate level courses there. Good evening, Dr. Whitehead. Good evening. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your program. Thank you for being here. I think we've got a great program this evening. Of all those things that I just mentioned and some that I did not mention, you've got quite (laughs) a resume here. Uh, What are you most proud of? I would say the thing that I'm most proud of, which is the one thing you didn't mention, is that I'm a wife and a mother of uh, two teenage boys. Uh, They're 12 and 10 years old, and I am just so blessed and honored to be raising up the next generation of young warriors along with my husband. Great. That is something to be proud of for sure. And um, of all the things, uh, all the 
academic areas that you could have gone in. How did you choose history and teaching? Well, I attended Lincoln University. Go ahead. Okay. I attended Lincoln University, uh, the oldest historically black college in America, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania? Okay. Not to be confused with University in Jefferson City, Missouri. Not to be confused at all. We are the oldest HBCU, uh, Lincoln University, Pennsylvania. And I studied African American history there as an undergraduate. I attended there. um, I started there in 1986. And so many of my professors had actively been involved in the civil rights movement. Um, At that time, Julian Bond's cousin was there, Jane Bond Howard, and she would talk to us about all of the excitement and the energy that surrounded the civil rights movement and how important it was for us to learn our history, to to be the next generation of torchbearers. And I just got on fire with this idea of wanting to know everything I could about my people and where we've come from to help us begin to understand where we're going. Okay. I want to remind our listeners that we'll be talking about uh, current uh, events in the black community, including mm-hmm. uh, the major item going on right now with uh, Mr. Russell Simmons and his uh, uploading of a video uh, mocking Harriet Tubman. Uh, before we get there, I get into that, what do you think about the Antoinette Tufts uh, situation there in Atlanta? I was George- incredibly moved by her story. Yeah. And as a communication... Go ahead. Yes. I was incredibly moved by her story. Um, I listened to the audio tape online. Um, I I heard as she talked to the gunman and convinced him to go in a different direction. I, I cried with her when she started crying at the end, talking about the day. And I could only imagine what she must have felt standing in front of this gentleman trying to talk him down off of a ledge, a ledge that he had set up in his own mind. What I think is Mm -hmm. most interesting is that at the same time that we have local heroes like her who are willing to put their lives on the line to save people by talking people out of making these wrong decisions, we have what's happening in other states where they're talking about arming teachers, where they're talking about giving teachers weapons to have in the classroom. I'm not sure if more weapons is the answer rather than having adequate training to help our young people when they have gone off the path and the only answer they think they have is one of destruction of not just themselves but everybody around them. So she is definitely an example, and I hope it's a, it's a teachable moment that we have another option. Rather than having my own weapon beside me ready to pull it out against him, perhaps there's another option, which is helping him to see where he stands in this and helping him to think through. And I think him it could be a male or female, but helping him to think through this decision and perhaps come out in a better place. Yeah, so some training around um, uh, crisis intervention uh, would probably be more appropriate than arming teachers, you think? I absolutely agree. Crisis intervention, uh, conflict resolution. I received my master's from the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. I attended the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, and that was one of the classes that we took uh, more than once. 
International Conflict Resolution. How do you step into the fray and help people to see where they may be wrong or where they are right to get them to agree to a different type of ending? How do you get people to compromise? How do you get people to look at themselves and make a different decision that might just save not only their lives, but the life of the people around them? Yeah, and um, this kind of contrast to the National Rifle Association, um, that the only way to deal with these events is with a gun. And uh, she kind of struck that down. And I don't think that's the answer. It reminds me of a cartoon I saw once when I was in college uh, where it talked about the Cold War. And it had two houses side by side, and one neighbor had 40 missiles sticking out the window, and the other neighbor had 40 missiles sticking out the window. And it talked about in this situation there is no compromise because how many missiles would it take for your house to be destroyed? That perhaps the answer is not let's arm everybody, but let's find a way to understand why people feel the mass destruction, mass school violence and shootings is the only answer to whatever problems that they might have. Mm-hmm. Our inter- uh, audience might be interested in knowing that the when the uh, people were killed, there are their kids there in Connecticut, is yes. when the president of the NRA came out with that statement about the only resolution would be, or the only resolution is to arm teachers. Um, well, they also just had recently up in that same area in Connecticut where they were having, you know, take your gun to Starbucks Day. Well, they had gun owners going into Starbucks with their weapons out uh, on their waist and having coffee so that people would become more comfortable with guns. These are not solutions to me. These are adding more problems to an already confusing pot of problems. And I say that not just as a a young mother, but also as a professor, because we've had shootings happening on campuses around the country. So I think about the students that are in my classroom, and I think about ways that I can intervene early enough before they begin to think that the only solution is to pick up a weapon, that there's got to be a way that we can become more responsive and more responsible for one another. I mean, become better citizens is what I what I like to deem it. You know, how can I be a better citizen, not just of, of Baltimore City, but of this country and ultimately of this planet because we're all here together. And I, I do believe in that old adage that, that we are only you know, renting the world or borrowing the world from our children because we, we have to leave them something here. We can't just use up everything and assume that they're going to start over. We have to give them a good place to start from. And what do you think society is uh, doing relative to bullying in our school systems? Is there enough treatment and counseling being done there? Because as I view it, a lot of these shooters uh, have been teenagers who were victims of bullying. I don't think enough is being done. I think that intervention needs to happen much earlier. Prior to joining uh, the academy as a professor, I was an inner-city school teacher here in Baltimore City. I taught for four years at one of the worst. It it was actually deemed persistently dangerous uh, middle schools in Baltimore City. We had over 1,200 students in the building that really should have housed only 800 students. 
and there were days we would come in and they would have the metal detectors at the door, or, or days when I would be called everything but my name before 8 o'clock in the morning. Wow. And by the time they got to middle school, the students that had been bullied, that attitude had already set in them. They were the ones that were the most withdrawn. They were the ones that tended to shy away from direct contact. And when you begin to, to talk to them and, and begin to probe their background, you see that they were teased mercilessly when they were in elementary school, sometimes even by the teachers. Because I think teachers uh, are sometimes not aware of how much power they have in their words. That you can speak truth or destruction over a child at an early age. If you are not supporting them at seven and eight and nine, and they're being bullied at the same time by their peers and by their teacher, what do you expect to have when they get 10, 11, and 12, and then ultimately at 15, 16, and 17? They only know a lifetime of being the target of negative and unwarranted attention. Yeah, proper treatment of... uh students by teachers, I think, was evidenced there in Virginia um, during that shooting when a professor's life was spared because um, of the treatment that he had received from that particular uh, teacher. I think Um, about that all the time. As a professor, I think about that, you know. How am I leaving my students? Am I leaving them better than how I found them? I thought the same thing when I was a teacher. I used to think that if I was teaching my own sons, how would I be in this classroom? And why should I give these students any less than I would give my own son? Why should I not support them? Why should I not believe in them? Because for some students, all they need is one person to say, you can do it, you can make it, you can reach beyond and go beyond your present situation and circumstance. You may be born in a low-income community. You don't have to remain there. You may be born in a home with no books. It doesn't mean you don't have to have a love of reading. Like you can imagine yourself beyond, and in imagining yourself beyond, let me show you the ways to get beyond. And some of those ways are rooted in having a strong educational foundation. Exactly. And Miss uh, Miss Tufts, who uh, it was actually she's the school bookkeeper, uh, animated some of that to that potential shooter, even mentioning "I love you." And uh, that we all have our bad days. And she also mentioned that she had had bad days. So she showed a lot of empathy uh, towards him. That's interesting. For For some students, not all, but for some students, they may not even hear the words, I love you, at home. They may hear, you are a mistake, you're an accident, you're the reason we don't have more. But they have a lifetime of memories of being told that they don't belong and that they're never going to be anything more than what they are at that moment. They're not told that they're special and that they're gems and that they're jewels and diamonds in the rough. They're not told that. And so just having someone say, I love you, even more important, I love you because I do support you, I love you, I see you. Like you actually exist and you have a voice, you have something to say, and I'm going to make that space available so you can say it. Yes. Um, I want to move on to uh, what's been going on up there in New York City around the stop and frisk. Um, and I see here recently that the 
City Council of New York, uh, Mr. Blumberg had vetoed uh, the court striking down uh, the uh, stop and frisk there in New York. What's your thoughts on that? Well, what concerns me um, with stop and frisk is this idea of the movement of African-American men and how there's this perceived criminality with brothers. And so when they move throughout the community, expectation, the assumption is that they're doing something illegal. So you want to stop and frisk to either find out that you are correct or to make them understand that they're never going to be assumed to be doing anything right. My husband and I recently published an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun where we talked about this. I mean, we talked about our 12-year-old son and having that talk with him about what it means to be perceived guilty just when you're walking on the street, the movement of black men and how dangerous for some people they think that actual movement is. Um, we are from New York originally. We moved to Baltimore about 10 years ago. And I'm just really concerned uh, because New York is seen to be a place that is setting the tone. So the question is, how can they look at stop and frisk and not think it's racial profiling when the number of people that are being stopped and frisked are men of color, brown and black people? How can that not be racial profiling? What are we supposed to think? It's almost as if they just assume that, you know, Joe and Jane Public are not as well read as a politician, we have an idea of what's going on. We know who's being profiled. The profiling has been done. It has not stopped. So what are we supposed to think when things like this uh, continue to happen? So you mentioned an op-ed that you and your husband co-wrote for the New York Times. Was that around the Trayvon Martin uh, episode? Yes, it was actually it was, it was published in the Baltimore Sun, and it was around the Trayvon Martin, and it was called Having the Talk with Our Son After Trayvon. As, as a writer, I like to, to approach issues from a very different perspective. So I know that with, with Trayvon Martin, um, my husband and I talked a lot about it. We knew that everybody was going to talk about the racial profiling. Everyone's going to talk about, you know, Trayvon Martin's life. We wanted to talk about it as parents. What does that mean for us that we could be Trayvon's parents? that we could do everything right with our son. We can give them the best education. We can give them opportunities. We can have them learn, you know, a second language. We can have them play baseball and football at the highest levels. We can do all of that. And they can walk to the store and be killed because oh, yes. of the color of their skin. But there is no protection for our young people so that we needed to learn a different type of language for him. We need to help him to understand that there is a perceived criminality. There is a danger of walking and breathing while black that he needs to be aware of. That when activities begin to happen on the, the playground of Baltimore City, because we talked about this, that even though Baltimore City does not have stand-your-ground laws, we do have some unwritten stand-your-ground laws that happen in the urban community. Uh, particularly when you look at the increased rates of black-on-black -black violence that's been making its way across Baltimore City throughout the summer. I mean, that, that's not a George Zimmerman. That's someone who looks just like you, and they're going through and they're shooting 10, 12, and 15 African-American males in a, in a weekend. Mm -hmm. So 
we want to go beyond just Trayvon and talk about what is happening to black men. But this violence that is taking place is not just happening because of the George Zimmerman. It's happening because of people that look like us as well with gang violence and drug violence and even the classroom-to-prison pipeline, which is yet to be disrupted, that young brothers feel that there are no answers, there's no solution, there's no better tomorrow, so why not live my life today like it's my last day, as if my decisions won't matter long-term, because there is no long-term for me. Yeah, the expectation of some young black males... um probably doesn't go beyond living past the age of 24. I've seen in a lot of studies and reports. So then if that is what the statistics are saying, why should I plan for a future? Exactly. Because there is no future. I can go to school every day and walk to the store to get iced tea and Skittles and get killed. He did not have a gun on his person. He did not have a knife on his person. He had candy and something to drink. And I just think there's something about that incident that makes us painfully aware of how much times have not changed. Rather than focus on the fact that George Zimmerman should not have gotten out of his car, he should have listened and not followed Trayvon, we want to then take Trayvon and make him a criminal. Well, he may have been on drugs. He may have been. He may have been all those things, but he did not have a gun, and that's the truth of the matter. The truth is that Zimmerman was told not to follow, and he chose to do otherwise. Because for some men, because even though Zimmerman, I think his mother is Peruvian, his father is white, um, they're calling him Hispanic. <laughs> but for some men, when they talk about standing your ground, they're talking about all the ground that they can see and claim, not just your backyard which is really what it should talk about. You can stand your ground on your ground, in your backyard, in your home. I can't claim the whole block. I can't claim the entire neighborhood. Some folks think they can. That goes all the way back to the manifest destiny. Yes, it does. That we're going to go west as far as we can, and we're going to kill every Native American in our path until we get there. And everything Everything we can see. Yes. It reminds me of the, the story of Moses in the Bible. When God said to Moses, everything you see belongs to you. Somehow or another, uh, men in this society and women in this society of a certain particular color have come to believe that same adage. Everything I see belongs to me. And everything they can't and somebody, see. The oil, the zinc, the coal, <laughs> everything <laughs> under this land belongs to me. Yeah, buddy. Yes, sir. Manifest destiny. So do you have a... Living in Baltimore now, after living in New York City, and uh, you got stop and frisk laws there, standing ground kind of no, approaches. We don't have, no, we we don't have that in Baltimore. I think it's unwritten, um, and that's what I talked about in, in the op-ed. There are some unwritten codes here that black men obviously need to be aware of. I'm I'm interested to see uh, coming after the controversy in Florida with everything that is going on, whether or not the standard ground laws will make their way across the country. I, I'm speaking um, at the ASALA conference, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, which is taking place in Jacksonville, Florida, 
um, in uh, the end of October, and I'm giving the Whitson Lecture, and I'm wondering, how do I address this? Uh, in this land of Florida, you know, the land where you can stand your ground and if you feel threatened, you can get up and follow a person if you feel threatened, how do I address this? Because this is something that has to be addressed. I think that those of us who are conscious and those of us who are awake and those of us who have the strength and the power and the courage to lean into these spaces, every opportunity we get, every microphone we have, every time we have a pen and a piece of paper, we have to speak out and speak up, or change will never come. You know, I'm wondering, um, and listening to you discuss this, um, these stand-your-ground laws, stop and frisk, you think those are coming about because of the encroachment against the uh, incarceration of young black males in this drug scene? You know, Eric Holder is beginning to push back and and yeah. wanting to do away with the discrepancies, so if we can't do it that way, we'll create yeah. stand-your-ground laws and stop and yeah. risk. I absolutely agree that these are all responses to that. And so I guess my my next question would be, what next? What is coming down the pipeline? Because it's it's not over yet. It is going to continue. And I think that this is the other part of the conversations about race that our country is not willing to actively engage themselves in that we, we like to believe, as some have said to me, that we are post-racial, as if having a black president is enough to make a nation of people who are struggling with trying to come to terms with over 250 years of American enslavement and the fact that 50 years ago we were marching in Washington, D.C. for jobs and for freedom, that we are still not post-racial. We have a lot of work to do. We, have, we as African-American people have not even been free in this country as long as we were enslaved. Hello. We have come yes, a long true. way, but we have a long way to go. And, and we have to continue to push. And those that are alive with us must push with us. It cannot stop. It doesn't mean that the struggle is just about African-American people. It does mean that African-American people are involved in an active struggle. Yeah, you're right on target with that, with the um, pushback now, the voting rights legislation. They're beginning to chip away at that. Affirmative action will probably be next. Yes, yes. Um, I, I mean, you think about voting rights, you think of affirmative action. I mean, you think when affirmative action came up you know, a few years ago at University of Michigan. I mean, even then, Sandra Day O'Connor said, we've got about 20 years for affirmative action, and it, it's going to be put to rest. Well, it's been about 20 years, so I'm expecting it to eventually make its way back up to the Supreme Court. I, I was a uh, Supreme Court fellow as, when I was a teacher, um, and one of the things that they taught us as fellows is that issues tend to kind of percolate throughout the nation and that if you see the same issue coming up and coming up, you can believe that at some point the Supreme Court is going to take on this issue to, to bring some clarity to it. Unfortunately, with the voting rights, what they've done is they've taken us in the opposite direction. So I well, one of the things that, that we try to do here, um, and I'm, I'm thinking about my husband and I, again, with our teenage boys, is try to find ways to help them to imagine themselves being more than what they are at this moment, helping them to understand that the world does not revolve around them. 
My, my husband is a missionary here in Baltimore City, um, and he works with, with men and women who are temporarily experiencing homelessness uh, through his organization called Foot Soldiers. Soldiers. And he takes okay. our sons out every every Saturday morning to help to feed the homeless so that they learn early on that the talents that they have and the opportunities that they have have been entrusted in them to make this world better, that they learn to put their own personal needs aside when someone else is in need. I think that's something that's sorely missing. Hello? Yes, yes I'm here. I'm just uh, back here, amen, and whatnot, you know. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I yeah. think, you know, one of the things um, that, that we're doing, and, I, again, I, I think about this, the parents who are looking for outlets for their sons and their daughters, too. But I think about our sons because I do believe that we're at a crisis point where boys of color need more support, they need more guidance, and they need more nurturing because they are getting to be an endangered species, and I'm concerned about that. I mean, just for instance, we'll be at the Baltimore School of the Bible on Saturday. My husband is a teacher at the Baltimore School of the Bible here in Baltimore, and we're getting our sons up at 9 a.m. to go over uh, to Park Avenue and to do volunteer work for the open house until 2 p.m. And they said, Molly, that's a long time. It is a long time. It's an, it is a long time. But if you were playing video games, which my boys don't play much of because we don't have a television or video games in the home, but if you were doing that, five hours would pass by and you wouldn't even think about it. Why not spend that time helping somebody else? Because maybe if it starts with that, then when they get to be 17, 18, and 19 years old, it's not the next generation of selfish people. Because there's something very selfish about taking a weapon into the school and killing everybody. Mm. You're not just killing. I mean, there's something very selfish about that. To think that I'm, I want to die and I want to take everybody I can with me rather than just take my own life. I want everybody to go. I think about that with Columbine. Like there's something selfish about this idea that the world must suffer because I'm suffering. So that's the other part of it. You know, when we think about the millennials, it's this idea that the world revolves completely about, around them. And, and I blame us, um, very honestly. I, I think that as parents and, and as, as grandparents, and even great-grandparents, we have worked hard to train this next generation to believe it's all about them. Uh, and I think that's very dangerous, and, and we see the results of that. Well, it's a new generation. You and your husband have taken a different tack in that teaching your sons that that principle of as you do to the least of these, so yes. do to me. Yes. And I uh, commend you and your husband for for taking that approach. You know, it, parents would take that approach. What a wonderful world this would be. Oh, what a wonderful world. I mean, it's the idea that that as Christians, we often believe um, and say that the answers to everything can be found in the Bible. If, if everybody lived by those simple principles, the world would be different. But we know that it's not. We know that we live in a very sick and depraved world. So what do we do? We work really hard to instill these values in our sons, you know, just talking about my husband and I, and then we just pray our heads off. I mean, that's really all we have because when you send your children out in this world, the only banner they have over them is the Lord. And you pray your heads off that they will be protected and that when they are in those rooms 
where students are thinking about doing something that goes outside the law, that the sons that you have raised and the daughters that you've raised will go right rather than go left. We we used to tell my, my sons, um, this is uh, when they were very young, my, my oldest son had an issue in his school where, and it's a very small issue, it was very large for him, but everybody was wearing dark khakis to school. Uh, it's a school where you have to wear a uniform. And he only had light khakis, and he cried. I and mean, he cried because he needed to have a pair of dark khakis to be just like everybody else. And my mm-hmm. husband and I told him that, that we are raising oak trees. We're not raising palm trees. We're raising oak trees who are deep rooted. Oak trees do not bend and sway to the wills and wishes and whims of other people. And we said that tomorrow you will wear the light khakis. We don't mind getting you dark khakis, but tomorrow you're going to go in there because you're a whitehead, and whiteheads don't bend. You've got to learn to stand because there's going to come a day when it's going to be about drugs or sex or violence or gangs, and you're going to have to learn how to stand it. You don't learn how to stand at 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. You're not going to stand at 17, 18, and 19 because it's not in you. It has that intervention has to start early. So when you talk about bullying, the products of mm-hmm. bullying in high school, that's why I say that intervention has to happen at 6 and 7 and 8. That's why those elementary school teachers have to speak love and truth into these young people because you are cultivating the next generation of people who will go right instead of going left, who won't pick up the weapon, who will walk away who will make the decision to stay in school rather than drop out at 16. How do we disrupt the classroom to prison pipeline? We get them at 7. We get them at 8. Because by the time they get to be 15, it's too late. It's too they late. are the people Much. that they are. Yes, I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, speaking of intervention, are we? Uh, what's Mr. Russell Simmons going to need for intervention? And uh, give our uh, listeners kind of a background on where we're coming from when we talk about Miss Russell Simmons. Surely everybody's heard, unless they're living under a rock. Yes. Um, Surely everybody's aware um, that Russell Simmons, um, in his intimate wisdom, as he was launching his Death Jam Internet station, came up with a brilliant idea. He came up with it, or his creative team came up with a brilliant idea to produce a Harriet Tubman parody. Um, and they used some well-known Internet stars. I'm not familiar with them um, because I don't watch movies through the Internet, but supposedly these actors are very well-known. Um, and this parody of Harriet Tubman, it is a sex tape. Uh, it portrays Harriet Tubman, who I like to see as our maternal mother, as a sex-starved Jezebel who's having sexual relations with her plantation owner, and she's doing it to blackmail him into giving her control over the underground world. All these historical inaccuracies. One of the very heavy actress playing Harriet Tubman, and one of the things we know about Harriet Tubman is that she was a very small, petite woman, that, that her size did not okay. uh, line up with her strength, yes? Yeah, I've just when you mentioned oh, that, just... I've seen the video, and excuse me yes. for saying, but the woman that was in that video was more of an Anchamama type. Yes, she was. She was an Anchamama type in, in both her size, her stature, which yes. goes against what we know. The church. So the thing about Tubman, which I think is most interesting, 
we don't have to imagine what she looks like. We actually have pictures of her. Exactly. Um, you can go on the Library of Congress website. There are pictures of Harriet Tubman that exist. So it's not an imaginative portrayal of her. We know what she looked. We know that she was a small woman. I mean, that's the thing that most amazed us about her, that this small woman made those trips to help free her friends and family. The second thing in terms of historical inaccuracy, this idea that rape was something to be glorified. Plantation owners owned their female enslaved women and girls. They owned them as property. And rape was a part of that ownership. It was not relationships. It was not something to be enjoyed. It was rape. And they did not have a voice because they were property. So to have Harriet Tubman talk about how I'm pretending that I didn't like them, but I really did like our secret times together, that's a disturbing historical inaccuracy. And what it does, it sexualizes female slaves as if they wanted to have these relationships, these sexualized relationships with men who owned them. They did not have a voice and they did not have a choice. The third historical inaccuracy is that here's a white plantation owner who's running the Underground Railroad, and Harriet Tubman wanted to blackmail him so that she can be involved. These are inaccuracies. So he releases this parody, and it goes viral, and people begin to speak up. People are angry that the legacy of Harriet Tubman has been marred and tarnished by that. I wrote a blog post. I keep a blog at, at uh, kwhithead.com, and I blogged about this. And I, I, on my blog, I refer to Harriet Tubman as you know, our maternal mother and this idea that she is someone whose life has been given to make our world better. I mean, she, she, she's beyond our understanding of the human capacity for love and forgiving. Because it's not just her work during the period of American enslavement that we can look to as an example. We can think about her work during the Civil War, when she volunteered to lead black Union soldiers through South Carolina on the Combahee River Project. And beyond the Civil War, you can think about her work with the women's movement, when she moved up to Albany and she helped to build uh, homes for the elderly, and she worked with orphans, and she spoke out, and she spoke with uh, women's, uh, women who were working with the women's movement at that time. Harriet Tubman's life and legacy is one of giving, of one of giving back. And so the fact that he chose to use her in this way to launch his station was disturbing. My blog post came out on Saturday, um, and people began to retweet my blog post. Uh, Bill, Bill Hooks retweeted it. Uh, Kate Larson, who wrote a definitive uh, book on Harriet Tubman, retweeted it. And people were talking about it because on my blog I approach it from a very different perspective. Instead of talking about the sex tape exclusively, I talk about my memory, my earliest memories of Harriet Tubman and how my grandmother, who I affectionately call Red, used to talk to me about Harriet Tubman when I was a little girl. My grandmother uh, lived in South Carolina and had about 15 to 20 acres of land in Lexington, South Carolina. And most of the land was wooded, but at the end of her property, she had a lake. And whenever we got in trouble, we had to walk through the woods and go sit by the water. And she would make us go down and to think about what we've done. And I used to go through the woods pretending to be Harriet Tubman. I would sing, go down Moses. I would sing, wade in the water. Uh, I would pretend as if I'm, I'm taking people to freedom. I would dart behind the trees and feel for the moss. 
and my blog post talks about this, uh, about the fact that I believe that we're all Harriet Tubman and, and what that meant to me as a child. Well, what's interesting is that a few days later, so it came out on Saturday, uh, on Wednesday of this week, I received a phone call from Harriet Tubman's great-great-grandniece, Judith Bryant, who lives in Auburn, New York. She called me because she had read my blog post and she enjoyed it. She had read my letters to a teenage son, my different blogs about my son, um, and she wanted to entrust her response to Russell Simmons to me. She said, I want, okay, I before, want you to take... Before you go there, uh, yeah, before you go to her response, I want to read um, Russell Simmons' apology, such okay. as it is, okay? And okay. This is, some, this is something he tweeted. I think it's a good segue into what you're getting ready to tell us. I quote, the last few days I have been speaking to some of the direct descendants of Harriet Tubman, Simmons tweeted. They have not they have not only accepted my apology, but we agree that we should begin immediately to develop the story of Harry Harriet Tubman. Now, would you uh continue about your relationship with Judith Bryant? a direct descendant of uh, Ms. Tubman, who now lives in Albany, New York. Well, one of the things that she said, she said, he did not speak to me, and I am not accepting his apology. <laughs> Her open letter uh, that she gave me, I, I took it and I made it into a PDF, and I released it on my academia.edu site, I posted it on my Facebook fan page. I uh, put a note up on my Facebook page, and I began to tweet it out. People retweeted it. And thus far, it has gone viral, um, and hundreds of people from all around the world have read this letter. And I'd like to just read a, a small section of it. Oh, please. Um, and, I, and, and I quote uh, from her, uh, and Judith Bryant says in her letter, uh, we continue to sow the seeds of our own destruction, and the few who might deter us are laughed out of the room. We is the nemesis, a self-induced state of delusion that cannot be blamed on anyone else for its blatant, shameful perpetuation. We have the power, but it is completely misused, misguided, corrupted, and disguised. We slumber on. And then she finishes by saying, this is about Russell Simmons, taking a name in vain to attract attention to your own commercial enterprise. Another form of rape, actually. You give mankind a bad name. Get off the stage and take your dumb death jam with you. Wow. So you would she, think that... Go ahead. She did not accept the apology. Apology unaccepted. <laughs> okay. So he basically tweeted an untruth. He may have spoken, uh, and I, I asked Miss Bryant about this, and she said she is not sure which family member he spoke to um, because he did not say which one he spoke to. Uh, but mm -hmm. the ones that she has been in contact with, they agree that no apology can make up for what he has done. 
Uh, I pointed out to Ms. Bryant, my concern is that since we are in the age of permanent technology, this image and this video and this story will forever be linked to Harriet Tubman's name. And that is a concern, and that, that's the dangerous part of putting out material that's not true. Because there may be a young person somewhere who Googles Harriet Tubman who sees that and may believe that the parody is based upon what really happened. He has removed the video, but it's still out there. You can't remove yeah, it from the internet. It's still there. You can go to my website. I actually link to it so that people can see that in the context of Miss Bryant's letter. You have to see that to understand her pain, her ache, her hurt, her anger, and her sadness. What do you think, uh, Mr. Simmons? Uh, you know, how how would he go against what uh, people would think? You know, an icon. I mean, there's some things that are off limits. Yes. Yes. And how could that, he not know? How could he not know uh, that that toward that kind of approach towards an icon like Harriet Tubman yes. is off limits? Yes. I mean, yes. but she, I'm hopeful that the response that has been given. I'm hopeful that with the way that Brian's letter has gone viral, the way that my blog post has gone viral, the the way that other blogs have gone viral, perhaps Simmons and other celebrities like him will think twice in the future about denigrating our heroes and sheroes. Okay. Now, let me, let's uh, play devil's advocate here for a moment. And you are a creative person. (laughs) <laughs> and what about those few people, those few people that defend Mr. Simmons under the guise of creativity, uh, creative freedom, that we don't well, have to mean, agree, but we right. can defend his right to do it? What's your response to that? I believe that there's still accountability even in our art. Mr. Simmons could have easily done a parody without giving this figure a name. He could have just did the life, uh, a day in the life of an enslaved woman. He could have done a parody that way. But once you put a name to that person and you name someone whose life and whose legacies are very well known, that's where the danger is. It's not about your creativity. It's about the fact that you choose to take creative license over somebody else's life. That's what concerns me. I look and I think someone might want to do a creative parody of me, and you make a sex tape of me. How is that okay? You could make a sex tape and just have an anonymous woman. You could make up a name. But once you take a real person, then there has to be some type of accountability because without it, then none of us are safe. All of our lives can become a parody. We can all end up in somebody else's sex tape. If it's okay for Harry Tubman, why is it okay for you or for me? There's got to be some lines here, some accountability. Harry Tubman's yeah. descendants are alive and well, and they disagree. Those of us who studied Harry Tubman and who love her for her life, her legacy, and what she has contributed to American history, we are alive and we are speaking up and we're saying, no, you can't care. 
Create a character and, if you so choose, but you cannot take a real person and take their life and do this type of story as if it is okay, as if we're not going to find a problem with it. And he did this, Mr. Simmons, after um, President Obama in March signed uh, yeah. an order making an historical memorial yeah. for Harriet Tubman. Um, yeah. You know, a black president in a position to bestow upon black icons, monuments yeah. and whatnot, and then he would come out with this parody and, as you say, gave it a name. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and this is the year where we that we celebrated what would have been Tubman's 100th birthday. There was a symposium at the University of Albany earlier this year. I was one of the speakers there, along with Dr. Beverly Gashatal and Professor Paula Giddings, talking about the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman. Um, at the same time, if I can just look at it from another angle, and, and, and I threw this out, and people were not happy that I said this, but I'm going to say it here, that... When we celebrated the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman earlier this year, we were blogging about it, we were talking about it, and there were a number of very small conversations happening about Harriet Tubman. Uh, People might have glanced at it, but it was not something that they were actively seeking. With Russell Simmons' release of this sex tape video, people everywhere are talking about Harriet Tubman. They are watching this video, and then they're going and reading my blog, or they're reading Judith Bryant's letter, that in this society, controversy is what moves kind of a B-level conversation to an A-level discussion. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though I'm not happy with what Simmons has done, I am happy that people are talking about Harriet Tubman. I'm happy that people are planning symposiums across the country to remember the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman. They weren't doing this a couple of months ago. She is now front page news, and she should be. We should be talking about her. We should be reevaluating her. We should be redefining her. And thanks to Simmons, if there's any thanks to him at all, is that he's put Harriet Tubman's name back on people's agenda. I mean, it's at the tip of their tongues now, whereas before, unfortunately, it was not. Perhaps out of this, we will see a good, strong, solid, historically accurate documentary of Tubman made. Maybe we'll see a new movie made about her. I mean, the last one was uh, A Woman Called Moses with Cicely Tyson. We need a new one for this next generation. A couple of months ago, Harry Tubman was not a part of the discussion. Today, everybody's talking about what can we do to go against this sex tape and to remind our young people of how important she was. You mentioned Cicely Tyson, a a woman called Moses. When did that movie come out? Oh, that's a good question. I remember seeing it when I was in high school, Um, and it came on TV, and I just thought it was an amazing portrayal. We know there were a lot of historical inaccuracies, but I'm trying to think. It was about 1978. I wonder if it's available on... uh... Amazon.com has it. You can get it there. Uh, They have clips of it on YouTube if people want to see it. But, I mean, that's a very, very old movie. Uh, And one of the ones that I remember, not just because of Cicely Tyson, but because it's the only movie I ever saw about Harry Tubman, just like um, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. (laughs) It's the only movie 
that I saw about her. Uh, so I, I remember these. But for this new generation, we need a new Harriet Tubman movie. Just like we're seeing the movie that's getting ready to come out about Solomon Northrup, 12 Years a Slave, or, or the popularity of the butler, uh, or the popularity of the help. It's a good time for us to look at doing a movie about Harriet Tubman, uh, of reintroducing her to this new generation. Not through a sex tape, but through a narrative and through a documentary. We need both um, so that people will understand both the truth of her life and what we've chosen to portray on screen. Until we get there, perhaps they can get over to Amazon.com and pick up a copy of uh, A Woman Called Moses. And, we'll uh, get Kate Larson's book, you know? Yeah, should be a part of every black person's uh, repertory, actually, yeah. of old, uh, you know, books and movies, et cetera. Uh, speaking yeah. of books, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your publishing. You got anything forthcoming? Yes, I do. I have two books that are coming out. Uh, in May and June of 2014. The first book is called Notes from a College Girl, uh, The Civil War Pocket Diaries of Emily Francis Davis. It's coming out through the University of South Carolina Press. Emily Francis Davis uh, was a freeborn black woman who lived in Philadelphia, and she kept a, a daily pocket diary from 1863 to 1865. My book has a full transcription of all three years' worth of the diaries as well as a six-chapter narrative about her life. Who was this black woman who felt her life was important enough and significant enough to keep a diary every day? Even though her life was not outstanding, it was not uh, significant in the sense when you think of, of, of leaders of that time, it has been rendered important because it survived. And there are only a handful of primary sources by freeborn black women that have survived into our day and age. And Emily Frances Davis's life and her legacy will be added to the canon of black women with the publishing of my book. So I'm excited uh, to introduce oh, yeah. Emily to the world. I, I am just so excited. Uh, thus far, uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates is writing a blurb for the back of the book. Uh, Dr. Ira Berlin is writing a blurb for the back of the book. Professor Paula Giddings is writing a blurb. Um, and helping me to get Emily's story out to the world that, you know, it's not just about the women who were enslaved during the Civil War uh, period, and that's important, but there was also an active free black community. And Emily wasn't just uh, working on behalf of the enslaved population in the South. She was shopping. She was a seamstress. She was dating. She was getting ice cream at the wharf. She was what I like to term an everyday woman. Um, and in my book, I, I kind of define what that means. And I do this investigation, what I call a forensic historical investigation, to find out who Emily Frances Davis was, why was she so important, and why should we talk about her today. Uh, my second book is called The Emancipation, Race Relations on the Eve of Reconstruction. Uh, this is coming out through Rutledge, and this is the one that will be out in June. This is part of the Critical Moments in American History series, and it looks at that moment when the Emancipation Proclamation was released, uh, and I, I define why that was a significant moment, how that changed race relations and how it changed the American society. Now, speaking, getting back to Miss Davis, 
Were you able to find any uh, descendants of hers today? No, I have not found any descendants. I did find uh, where she was buried. She's buried uh, in Philadelphia, Lebanon Cemetery. I found the burial records for her children and for her grandchildren. Uh, oh, so, wow. so Emily Francis Davis lived a long life, but her children and grandchildren did not. I mean, she, two of her grandkids died when they were less than 10 years old. So she's an amazing woman, and I think this is why her name is important, because she has a story. I mean, once you put this, something down on paper, and, and I like to, to, to imagine how her work may have survived. Perhaps they were in someone's attic or in someone's basement. Perhaps they were passed along from family member to family member on somebody's deathbed. They would say, go get my Bible and go get the Emily Francis Davis Diaries. So I can pass that on before I, I pass away. Um, we don't know how the books ended up at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. We know they ended up there, but we, we don't know the provenance of the diaries. Who had them? Who found them? How did they get there? They were donated anonymously. So I, I am just excited that by studying the, the, the archives, I was able to find her. I mean, she was a student at the Institute for Public Youth, which eventually became Cheney University. Um, she uh, went to church in Philadelphia at the African Presbyterian Church. She actually bought a seat in her own name. So not only uh, was she an educated woman, but she also had her own money because uh, black women at that time would have a seat in their husband's family's name. That was, she had a exactly. seat in her own name. And she passed that seat onto her daughter, and I just think that's fascinating. She also bought a, a sewing machine, and sewing machines at that time were, were the equivalent of about $1,100 today. She saved up and got on the Singer uh, payment plan, and so she was making enough money to pay off a sewing machine. And she had a, a very healthy income as a single black woman at that time. Now, in your creative work, you've done quite a bit of creative work, quite a bit of films. <laughs> of all that work you've done, what would you, what would be the first thing you would recommend to me to go out and get a copy of in terms, one, out of your creative work, and what film? Okay. Because you've done quite a uh, number of films. Yes. Um, if a person was... Well, the person was looking to, to kind of get one film from me, one creative work, and one of my historical works, I would say uh, for film that they should go and get my film, Twin Towers, A History. Uh, I was living in New York when the towers came down, and three days after the towers came down, I went to my executive producer, and asked if I could do a documentary about the Twin Towers. And my documentary, when it came out, was the first documentary about the Twin Towers. I had um, David Rockefeller in the film. I had engineers in the film. And what we talked about was how they were built. Uh, there's a story, uh, the engineer in my film talks about how at one point in the Twin Towers, they did not have any light switches. They kept the electricity on day and night, and how his job was to go in at 11 o'clock at night and shut the building down floor by floor with the lights. He also talks about the moment when he was watching TV, and he saw 
the buildings on fire. And he sat there stunned. And when they came down after an hour or so, he knew they were coming down because he helped to design them. He was in the building before the outer part went on, what they call the skin. But he said there was a part of him that felt that his buildings, as that's what he referred to them as, had done their job. They stayed up long enough for some people to get out, which I think is just absolutely amazing. So I would say if you want to see one of my films, go get Twin Towers of History, which was nominated for a New York Emmy. Um, and you can see the way I approach the world with, with the historical lens, but with the desire to want to tell stories. If you wanted to get one of my creative works, um, I would say that that you go online and, and you find uh, my poem, The Revolution Starts at 11 a.m. Uh, this is one oh. of the poems that was published in a book called Sister Fire. I was published with Maya Angelou's in the book and Vicky Giovanni's in the book. And my poem, uh, The Revolution Starts at 11 a.m., which is really about the power and the strength of, of relationships between black men and black women, was the poem used to open up the book. Also the poem that won me uh, the Langston Hughes Poetry Award, the first time that I've won it twice, but the first time was based upon that work, that collection around black love. So if you want to see how how I do my creative work, I would say you Google my poetry and you take a look at The Revolution Starts at 11 a.m. And, and then like if you want to kind of... Yeah, oh, it's just a wonderful poem, um, a short yeah. poem, but a wonderful poem. And, and if you want to see where, where I am today uh, as a mother, I would say go online to my blog and take a look at the series that I'm blogging about called Letters to My Tweenage Son, where I have written to my tweenage son about falling in love and, and how I advise him to leave people better than how he found them. Uh, to guard his heart and to guard hers. Um, and it, it, it just talks about my journey uh, to want to give my son any guidance and direction that I have and that my husband and I have that we want to share. Um, a lot of mothers follow that, that series and comment, and many of them have taken the, the piece I've done about relationships and printed it out, and they've given it to their tweenage sons and say, read this, and then let's talk about it. So if you want to see where I am as a mom and a wife, take a look at Letters to My Tweenage Son on my blog. And then finally, if you want to see where I am as, as, an, as an academic, um, to, to go online and take a look at my articles. I have a really good article called They Both Got History about Emily Davis and Amos Weber, a black man who kept these weather journals uh, during the same time that Emily kept her pocket diaries. Oh, yeah. And I do, I look at both of their lives and why it was important uh, for him as a black man to keep a weather journal and for her as a black woman to keep a pocket diary. To take a look at that article and then to, of course, buy my book as soon as it comes out, notes from a colored girl, um, and take a look at it. And I guess one other thing, if you if you want to see me talking about my work, um, then, then I would suggest in just a month or so that you take a look at Dr. Henry Louis Gates' new PBS documentary where he looks at African-American history because I'm in the documentary in the section talking about uh, the early 1800s and, and free black Philadelphia. Uh, Dr. Gates oh, yeah. brought me into Philly last uh, November 
and interviewed me. So you, you'll be able to see me in that documentary talking about my work and talking about black history from the late 1700s up to the early 1800s. So if you want to kind of, I believe that the second part, because I'm in part two, um, if you just Google uh, Henry Louis Gates and his PBS documentary, Africans in America, you can get the dates. I know, I believe it's October 29th. I don't have it at the top of my head. Um, But I am excited. Um, And I I tell you in so many ways that this year has been a year of amazing things in my life and in my career, beginning with, with Dr. Gates calling me to be in the documentary. And I, I sat there and thought, you know, out of all the historians, out of all the Jeep joints across America, that that he's calling me to to listen to me talk about black history. I, I was humbled and blessed by that in November. And then in February, uh, when President Obama hosted the first Black History Month panel that he has done since being in the White House, that they brought in four uh, historians, and I was one of the four to be at this Black History Month panel, along with Jelani Cobb and James Peterson. And again, I said, "Wow!" Out of all the historians and and all the juke joints across America, that <laughs> yeah. when they're looking for a historian, they select me. And then, of course, the most humbling experience of all was to pick up the phone and have Harriet Tubman's great great grandniece uh, call me and tell me that she wants me to be the person to share her letter with the world. And in the back of my mind, my favorite line, of course, out of all the historians and all the juke joints across America that you could have called on, that something that I've done resonated with you and you felt that if your story and your letter was going to go forth, you wanted to place it in my hand to do that. Uh, So it has been... Yes. Your blog is at kwhitehead.com? My blog is at kwisewhitehead.com. It's kwisewhitehead.com. Okay. Um, and they just, they just simply Google um, the open letter or they Google kwhitehead, it will come up. Great. It will come okay. up. Um, it's interesting because with, with this letter, and I, I thank Ms. Bryant, but when I got the latest stats from academia and saw that people from Ethiopia and Brazil and Canada and Portugal and Spain had been online and had actually read her letter, I was just so happy that the story has gone beyond the American borders. That this story impacts people around the world. Harriet Tubman is known around the world. Around the people world. People are reading about her. Around the world. She, she's now, bigger than America. We can't contain her. Um, earlier you mentioned being involved in a Woodson lecture. Is that lecture coming up? Yes, the Woodson Lecture is in uh, it's at the Asala Convention, which is taking place starting on October 31st. Um, but I'm also speaking on Monday. Monday I'm speaking at the March on Washington 50th Anniversary Mentoring Youth Summit that's happening at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, they are doing the official release of the proclamation of the president's releasing for the March on Washington. And I am one of the speakers. In fact, I was originally scheduled to be on a panel, and they asked me just a week ago if I would be the opening speaker and help to historically contextualize the day. So I will be speaking there. There are a number of Congress people that will be there, uh, invited uh, actors and speakers and politicians, and some students will be in the audience. And then on Tuesday, 
I will be at the museum for the second part of the summit. And actually that day I'm acting as a producer because I'm helping to shoot a documentary uh, for PBS about the March on Washington and this notice to Congress for use and what are we going to do in terms of understanding the legacy of the march, but using it as a platform to go forward and make changes in the African-American community. Wow, you've got a plateful there uh, <laughs> yeah. coming up. Yes, I have a very supportive uh, husband, trust me. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, I'm sure. Now, you mentioned uh, Facebook a couple. Do you have two Facebook accounts? Yes, it, um, I have my Facebook fan page is the best place to reach me. I keep on my Facebook fan page what I call um, Grio on the Go. And Grio okay. on the Go on, on my Facebook fan page, is, which is under Dr. Carsonia, K-A-R-S-O-N-Y-A, K-Y's Whitehead, uh, gives you an idea uh, of my schedule and, and what areas I'm going to be in when I'm speaking, and I ask people to respond to things. So go online. You can follow me on my Facebook fan page. You can follow me on Twitter, at K Whitehead, uh, and that's K-A-Y-E, Whitehead, so I'm on Twitter. And you can follow me at my academia site, uh, and you can be on my blog, read my blog. And I just put a new post up there today talking a bit about working with Miss Bryant and working to get her letter out and what does it take for something to go viral. Uh, and the work that's done to get out the word and the message from the Tubman family uh, through Miss Bryant about Russell Simmons' latest debacle. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. We've gone over. I have just enjoyed myself. Thank you so and much. I enjoyed you immensely. Um, I want to remind our guests that you've been listening to Dr. Karsanya Wise Whitehead assistant professor of communication and also an affiliate assistant professor of African and African-American studies, Loyola University, Maryland. I've been your host, and I'm sure you're going to pick up a lot of followers here. I hope so. Various Facebook pages. Well, you've got one. That's me. I'll be there. (laughs) And I'm sure Leslie will be there as well if she's not there already. Uh, and I would love to come back when my book comes out and or after oh, Gates' documentary oh, airs and we can talk about those things as well. Definitely. Um, I'm sure that uh, Leslie's going to have you at the top of her list. Thank you so coming much. Out, coming out um, or anything you want to talk about. Uh, I appreciate sure. that. And uh, I wish you well. Give my regards to your family. Yes, and, sir. And... Uh, I've appreciated very much uh, having you as a guest. Thank you so much. Have a very good evening. You too. Good night. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.